0: I'm Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso, and today we're going to look at food, cooking, cookbooks, and an American identity. Dr. Rachel Snell, who received her PhD in history from the University of Maine in 2016, is going to provide us with some of these answers. She studies food and food writing as a way to understand the lived experience of early American women. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast. I find the study of food and history and culture so interesting. And, um, I'm not even really sure where to begin with this. So I thought we could kind of start broadly and maybe you could, um, you know, kind of focus on New England in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I'm curious if you could tell us, like, what was the culinary life like for the typical woman? And I'm thinking, you know, then I thought, well, it's probably different. So think about like in a village. So instead of in Boston or some way rural and isolated area, um, what, would, what would a woman's life be like? Would she, what would her kitchen look like, for example?
1: Sure. So, so of course, you're, you're absolutely right. There would be a wide range based on where a woman lived, her socioeconomic status. Uh, whether she was free or enslaved. Um, but if we're talking about sort of the typical woman living um, in a smaller urban area uh, outside of a big city like Boston oh. or Philadelphia, uh, her most of her time would have been spent in her kitchen. And she would have been cooking over an open hearth rather than a stove. And there would have been a rhythm of daily tasks that she would follow throughout the week. Uh, for instance, she would do her baking on one day. Um, a lot of women did their baking on Saturday. And she, if she had a big enough hearth and she had, uh, an oven within her hearth, she could have done it at home. So she might have gone to a neighbor's or the local baker's to do her, her weekly baking. And in that way, it would have been an opportunity for her to have a period of socialization and spend time uh, with other people. Uh, the colonial kitchen was a very social place with people coming and going. Uh, she would have done her laundry once a week, She probably would have had a a loom or a spinning wheel set up in her kitchen so that at any spare moment she could sit down and work on textiles. Um, Most of her cooking would have been relatively hands off. Uh, It would have been a lot of stews, a lot of puddings, a lot of roasts, a lot of uh, you know, in our modern lives, we're very interested in kind of set it and forget it sorts of cooking with crock pot. pot, instapot. And in a sense, it would have been very similar to that. You would have something bubbling on the stove throughout the day that took relatively little attention. And, uh, for special occasions, uh, you might spend a bit more time preparing a meal. But for the most part, it was, um, relatively simple. And the the biggest difference that would have existed between uh, elite families, middling families, uh, poor families would have been the number of dishes, the cost of the ingredients, and perhaps most importantly, who was preparing the food.
0: I don't remember what it was I read, and it might have been... Um Ulrich's Good Wives, but you know, there it's when I first started grad school in history, and there's some sort of comment about how different a woman's life was when she got a second pot, you know, and so she could cook multiple things. And I remember, I think that's what made me decide to pursue a graduate degree in in history was like that blew my mind because it makes so much sense that you can multitask and you can boil water for your laundry while you're bubbling up your stew. But yeah, I mean, such simple things, but would be so important economically, you know, whether you could attain that would make, I would think so much difference about a woman's time, you know, does she have, you know, how much time does she spend at her labor? So I find all of that just, just amazing. Um, So where do they get their food in a village? Would they have a kitchen garden? Would they shop? Would they, you know, what do they... What did they do themselves?
1: Yeah, there would have been a wide variety of sources for food. Um, you know, Depending on where they lived, they would be able to produce some of their own food. Um, most people, if they had the space, would have a, a kitchen garden that might have some, some herbs, some, some easily grown plants um other families of course lived on farms and they would have been producing their parts of their food but also food for the market and there would have been a lot of trade and exchange that went on for for example if your your neighbor had an apple orchard and you had um a blueberry baron then you would trade uh, they would have more apples than they could use and maybe than they could sell and they wanted some blueberries that so you would trade. So there was a lot of exchange that that went on that was really solely within the realm of women. Women would trade um, the foodstuffs that had not yet been prepared. So apples, blueberries, but they might also trade uh, foodstuffs that they had labored towards making. Um, they might trade jam with a neighbor they might trade eggs with a neighbor um, in almost every village there would have been uh, some kind of store where you could have gone in and you could have gotten the things that you or your neighbors couldn't produce so you could get uh, flour uh, various various different kinds of meal um, there's a lot of spices and cooking in in this period and people would have would have gotten those um, through, through stores, through international trade networks.
0: So um, thinking about, you know, at this point, col- colonies have been around for a little bit in British North America. Um, still early, but, but it's developing. And it seems like at this point, we're also going to start seeing more of a difference between status. So you're going to start having a few elites, you know, middling, you know, classes, since we don't really have classes yet, pre-capitalism, but um, and and people that are sort of the working poor. And I'm curious, were there, you know, differences in what they ate? Um, you know, I'm thinking today I've been reading about food deserts and things like that. Um, did a, an equivalent, whether driven by money or you lived three miles out of the village? I mean, was there a big difference in what people ate? Some of the
1: biggest differences in in what people ate are, I think they would fall along the lines of what we would expect. Uh, People who were better off ate meat more often. Uh, One of the, the driving forces of the industrialization of the meat industry in the 19th century was making meat more available and affordable. Uh, so that nearly all Americans could eat meat on a regular basis uh, throughout the colonial period into the 19th century uh, really only the the wealthy would have meat on a regular basis um, partly because of the rhythms of agricultural life uh, you unless you have a way to preserve and store meat, which could be expensive to do um, because you had to have the, the space and the time to have a smokehouse if you wanted to smoke your meat to preserve it. Uh, or if you were going to brine or pickle your meat, that required a great deal of salt and spices. Uh, so to have meat available to you regularly throughout throughout the year required uh, a fair amount of wealth. And then other people would match their, their meat eating to the, the rhythm of agricultural life. So in the spring, uh, you would be able to have veal. And in the fall, you'd be able to have, uh, you know, sausage and ham. Uh, so that that was one major difference. And then how often, uh, something that was sweetened with sugar appeared on your table would also be a major difference because sugar is produced, uh, you know, if we're talking about New England, sugar is produced relatively far away uh, and it's still expensive to turn it into uh, something close to the white granulated sugar that we buy at the grocery store today. And so to have something made with refined white sugar on your table on a regular basis would, would mean that you were relatively well off. And people who were less well off, um, might not have things sweetened with sugar. They might use maple sugar. They might use less expensive byproducts of the sugar making process, like brown sugar and molasses. And they might rely on, on fruit. to to sweeten things rather than sugar.
0: When does sugar, do you know when sugar becomes more accessible or does it really never become more accessible until like the 20th century?
1: It's the, the mid 19th century refined white sugar becomes more accessible uh, for two reasons. Uh, One is a real increase in production in slave-owning parts of the world, uh, South America, the, the the West Indies left, though, but um, South America, they really expand their production in the 19th century. And then there's also a process invented, uh, I don't remember exactly when, but around mid-century that makes the, the process of refining white sugar less expensive.
0: Okay. I am... Um... I love the little house books when I was a kid and, you know, they talk about food so much. And so that's what made me wonder about the white sugar, because that's such a big deal when they're living more isolated on the prairie. And it also makes me think, even as a little kid that didn't know anything, I was always appalled by the lack of vegetables that they ate, that they just had salt pork and potatoes And it made me kind of think about in these colonial eras, um, I know they, they're more stable so they could grow some things, but did they, um, did they have much of a thought about nutrition? Did they think about what they ate and how that would affect their bodies? Or is that a more modern concept?
1: Yes. Um, people thought about what they ate and what made a good diet extensively. you know, since the beginning of recorded history, people have been very concerned about what what they're eating, what other people are eating, what people should be eating. Um, but it's not nutritionally sound as we know it could be today. Um, uh, like like you said, very it's very rare to see vegetables, and vegetables are usually prepared in a way that. Seems like it would be completely unappealing. (laughs) Boil them with salt forever until they must have turned into mush. Um, I think baby food is is a really good example. I've been looking at some recipes for uh, some recipes and and treatises on how you should feed babies and and small children, and it's all it's all incredibly bland. There's, There's this idea, especially in the 19th century, that children cannot handle strong flavors. And if you give them to, to, to them, you're going to upset their stomachs and ruin their constitutions. Uh, and of course, nowadays, we know that the, when you first start feeding a child uh, between four and seven months, that's the, the period where you want to give them as many flavors as possible uh, to develop their palate for later. So there's a lot of thought about nutrition, but people are not aware of uh, how food reacts with the body. Uh, very often when my students look at these recipes, they're absolutely appalled by the amount of of butter, of bacon, of lard that, that's in the, these recipes. And people just didn't know, for one thing, and people had much more active lifestyles for right. another.
0: So, um, you know, when I look at an old cookbook, I'm always so amazed that people could bake prior to, you know, stoves. You know, I I realize like often they're, they're sort of incense, insets of a, of a fireplace where you could do some baking. But to me, how you baked a cake in 1700 just, you know, baffles me. And I'm wondering if you could tell me, like, did people cook Special meals, like were there you know this is pre Thanksgiving, but did they have Christmas dinners? were there cakes for your birthday, or if you got married, were there wedding cakes? I mean, was food seen as part of of something more than just what you put in your body were there special special foods?
1: Yes, definitely, um there wasn't really birthday cake. How, especially as, as we think of it now as a, a layered cake with frosting doesn't come along until later. Uh, wedding cakes don't, again, as we think about them as a layered cake with tears and frosting and decoration, um, that doesn't happen in, until um, after Victoria and, and Albert get married. But there is absolutely this sense that when you gather with other people for a celebratory purpose, that you uh enjoy some kind of of food with them there are uh many many recipes for fruit cakes uh so these really rich spiced uh studded with dried fruit and nut cakes that that people would make around the holiday season there's starting to be an idea of what you should eat at Thanksgiving, which is based on kind of some idealized notions of the pilgrims' first feast at, at Plymouth Plantation, mm-hmm. um, with with turkey and cranberries, um, these sort of harvest foods that that people would would have had readily available in the fall. Um, but but cookbooks throughout the colonial period and into the 19th century are are just overflowing with recipes for cakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me that there's a real interest in, in that kind of cooking because it was the sort of thing that you wouldn't do every single day. It's more complicated. You would need a recipe to make a cake, whereas you might not necessarily need a recipe for the loaf of bread that you made your family every week. Uh, sort of a good specific example of celebratory cooking and cake is, in, in the New England context is election cake. And election cake appears in several 19th century cookbooks. Lydia Maria Child um, has a recipe for it, Catherine Beecher. Uh, but it's a much, much older recipe than that. Historians think that it emerged around the... 1660 gubernatorial election in Hartford, Connecticut. And it comes from the British great cake tradition. So it's not really a cake the way we would think of a cake today, something that's leavened with baking powder and baking soda, uses refined white sugar and sifted flour. It's really light and airy. Uh, Election cake would have been more like a dense, sweetened bread Mm. and it was full of dried fruits and spices and nuts and it would be decorated with uh, an icing and there's this really wonderful early 19th century account of elections before the American Revolution uh, that's talking about election cake And, and to this writer election cake was really the draw of Election Day. They described Election Day as the day to cut the cake and talk about how each woman in town would produce an election cake. And in in that time, people would all go to the county seat to to vote. And so there would be this influx of people into a town on Election Day. And it was this wonderful opportunity to socialize with friends and family that you didn't get to see on a regular basis and according to this writer people would go from house to house to to visit but also to sample election cake and they're talked about there being two contests going on one the election and the second one with the election cake deciding who made the best election cake that year
0: i have i've made election cake a couple of times um because people are always so interested in, you know, a really old recipe. And I found, yeah, they're disappointed that it's not cake, that it's more bready. Um, and some people really seem to like it and some, some dismiss it. I made it for a class last year and, uh, I was surprised some people ate several pieces and some like took a bite. and was like, uh, no, thanks. And, um, do you know, is it typical for, I mean, was election cake, were most cakes like that before, like the 19th century, sort of more of a bread than a, than a cake?
1: There, there were sort of two, two kinds of cake before the advent of chemical leaveners in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of the great cake, the yeasted cake, which is more of a sweetened bread. And then there would have been um, sponge cakes, and those mm-hmm. would have been leavened with eggs. And those were incredibly laborious because you would have to beat your egg yolks, beat your egg whites, very carefully combine your ingredients to not lose um, that leavening that you had beaten into those eggs uh, and bake them. So those would have been incredibly. Complicated cake to make, and the the yeasted grape cake um, would have been a lot easier. You could have taken some of the dough from your your weekly bread baking, and you could have added to it in order to make it into a cake. Versus spending all of this time making a, a sponge cake or a pound cake.
0: Okay. Um. So, how common were cookbooks at this time? I mean, did women learn? You know, I'm thinking if people didn't move from home that often, you know, that area, you know, you, you move to the farm down down the street, did people, is cooking an oral tradition or is it really like a long-term part of print culture?
1: So there were cookbooks in the colonial period, but they are British. They're either uh, imported from Britain or they're reprints of of British cookbooks. So there's relatively few cookbooks, printed cookbooks, like we would recognize them today. Um, a lot of families would create their own cookbook. They would write down the recipes that were important to them. Um, recipes that they used on a regular basis or on an irregular basis and they needed a reminder of how to produce those dishes. Um, and those would have been passed down through, through the family. But there, in the 19th century, there's this sense that women are not as well equipped in the kitchen. They need more instruction, that this oral tradition, this sort of apprenticeship in your mother's kitchen has, has faded away. And then there's this, um, sort of opening for cookbook authors to instruct women on how to cook. Um, But you don't see that as much in the colonial period.
0: So what was the first cookbook published in the U.S.? Like that's not a a British cookbook, but written kind of for the, the U.S.
1: So the first cookbook that's published, written, and published in the United States is Amelia Simmons. American cookery, and that's published in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1796. Um, and this is, uh, it, you know, declares on the the title page that their the recipes are adapted to this country, but it's really uh, an e- example of how strong British culinary traditions still were in the United States in the 1790s. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of British cakes, puddings. Um, there's a lot of roasting of, of meat. Um, it's in, in many ways, it's not very different from the British cookbooks that were circulating in the United States. Um, what's, what's significant about it is that it has the, the rest, the first published recipe for election cake. So this, preservation of this long-standing New England tradition. It has the first recipes for cookies, which um, are sort of a derivative of Dutch cooking. And those cookie recipes have the first published example of pearl ash. And pearl ash is the first the first foray into chemical leaveners uh, that appears
0: to be an American
1: innovation.
0: So, what exactly is pearl ash?
1: So, pearl ash, um, so to so back up, so when European settlers first arrive in North America, they encounter native peoples who primary grain is corn. And when native peoples prepared corn, they would combine the the cornmeal with ashes. And that uh, was, they didn't know this, but this was really important for releasing all of the nutrition within, within corn. And it also gave it just a, a bit of leavening because cornmeal won't react with yeast. Um, and it's, seems like innovative Americans noticed this and they concentrated this, um, this process into what's called pearl ash, which was made by um, taking ashes from your fireplace and you would leach water through it. And then you would um, concentrate that water and allow it to evaporate. And then you would have this kind of powdery substance um, that was called pearl ash. And if you added that to a baked good along with something acidic like citrus or sour milk, the chemical reaction would uh, leaven your baked good the same way that baking soda works in a cookie recipe today.
0: Wow. So that's kind of cool that they would make it themselves. So it's just something that you would maybe make every so often in store? Or would you make it each time you cooked? Like, would that be process of, of when I'm baking cookies? Would I, would I also have to make the pearl ash? Or would I make it, you know, a couple of times a year and just have it in my pantry?
1: It seems like it was a product that you would have gotten through trade or exchange. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen any recipes for how you would make pearl ash in your own kitchen. It certainly sounds like something that people could have done. And, you know, women were, were using their, their ashes to, to make soap. So, so it's within the realm of reason that they would have also made pearl ash, but I haven't seen any evidence that they did. I have seen evidence of trade or exchange for pearl ash.
0: Okay. Well, that's what I was thinking. It's like, I've never seen a recipe for it, but you know, if you can make it from your own ashes and water, I thought, well, I guess maybe they do. But yeah, in my head, I always imagined it's something you would, would purchase that it's too time consuming to, to make yourself for your own use.
1: Right. It sounds like, it sounds like it would be very time consuming. And like I said, I've never seen a recipe for it. So I'm not even certain exactly how long it would take to produce pearl ash.
0: So, um, so Simmons writes this kind of first American cookbook and I understand that she has like a, an introduction to it. So is, is she just providing recipes or is she kind of providing a guide to life or a, a definition of, of, I don't know, some sort of American identity or identity for individuals or what's going on? Because I, you know, I find that so interesting that she, it's not just recipes, she writes something to begin with.
1: Right. She, so we know very, very little about Simmons as a person. We assume that she most likely lived in the Hartford area where her cookbook is published. And that these were probably her recipes. Um, maybe that she had adapted herself or she had gathered from, from friends. So she doesn't tell us the, the source of her recipes, but she does tell us that they are adapted to this country. And she has a, a preface where she talks about the, the role of, of women and <coughs> the sort of knowledge that women should have about cookery and it's it's very um sort of reminiscent of republican motherhood this idea that women have a really important role to play in society that it's within the domestic sphere and it's through raising virtuous citizens um Caring for their, their husbands, cooking good food. And she's really focused in on the, the cooking good food aspect of that, you know, food that's adapted to this country. Um, other cookbooks that come out a few decades after Simmons are much more forthright about saying that there is a certain kind of food that Americans should eat. Uh, I'm thinking about the Cook Not Mad, which is published in upstate New York in 1831. And this is mainly a reprint, again, of British recipes. But it has a preface where it says, you know, American people need to eat American food, not British food, not French food, American food. And Simmons is sort of starting out this conversation in 1796.
0: So I understand that you are working on a book that looks, I think you're looking mostly at the 19th century, but this idea of, women and food and writing about food. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So most of the scholarship about women's household work, domesticity, cooking in the 19th century is based on published cookbooks. So we've referred to throughout our conversation uh, to Lydia Maria Child, Catherine Beecher, Uh, Eliza Leslie is also a big name in cookbook publishing. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes a a cookbook with her her sister. And much of what historians have, have looked at for this period, how they've understood women's work, has come from these published texts, which are incredibly prescriptive. They're telling women how they should act within their home, what they need to do. And they all come from this assumption that American women are not as well prepared to care for their families, to prepare meals, to keep their, their homes than they were in the past. And that's why these, these cookbook authors are, are writing. They're trying to, to rectify this situation. And in my research, I I looked at at all those published texts, but I looked at them in comparison with individual women's writing about food. So I looked at manuscript cookbooks. So these these are are the, the cookbooks that women created for their own personal use within their homes, gathering recipes from multiple different sources. And I looked at at, at diaries and, and letters and what emerged out of that that comparison was American women in the 19th century for the most part were very competent within within their households and they felt confident within their domestic tasks and they used the expectations of, of domesticity in really fascinating ways to, find ways to be active outside of the household and to find opportunities to socialize with, with other women. So the home, we tend to think of it as being um, just for the immediate family of women being rather relatively isolated within, within their home. Um, but really the, it was this flourishing social sphere of of coming and going, of women uh, finding ways to accomplish their their household tasks and uh, gather with their friends, and so my my book, which I'm uh, in in the process of of preparing for press, uh, talks about this negotiation of domesticity that women in the 19th century took the the expectations of domesticity that were created by cookbook authors and they found ways to apply them to their daily lives that for some women were frustrating and oppressive, but for most women uh, were in empowering and made them feel like confident, um, and productive members of society.
0: That sounds really interesting. And I'm looking forward to, to reading it because I think so often we get in this spot of this is what women's lives look like. And uh, it is so prescriptive instead of, you know, kind of thinking, well, no, they didn't blindly read Beecher and, and follow all of that. But instead... You know, process and use and, and are far less isolated, things like that. So your book is definitely needed and I look forward to reading it. I have a million other questions I'd like to ask, but I'm looking at the clock and we've talked for a while. And so I think to, to sort of wrap things up, one of the things I've done with all of the podcasts is, you know, I'm hoping that we can think about people in a different way. And so instead of the dry what a textbook says or what, what I might say in a lecture that we can kind of think of them in different ways or a, a a more 21st century way. And so I've asked, you know, if you, if you imagine Amelia Simmons or any, you know, a colonial, um, wife and mother, if they had an Instagram account in 1700 or, you know, Simmons in 1796, what kind of hashtags might they use to, uh, describe themselves or their situation or identify things? What are what's a short tag that that would tell us who they are and their attitude?
1: Yeah, I, I really love this question. I was I was thinking about it. I was thinking about Simmons and I was also thinking about the the 19th century cookbook authors that I studied, like Catherine Beecher, Lydia Maria Child, Eliza Leslie. Um and I think all of them in our present moment would have been food bloggers or influencers. They would have been really concerned with getting their, their message and their recipe out there. And so I kind of see them as having these Instagram posts where they have, you know, the really appetizing picture uh, and then the description and then this, huge cache of hashtags because they're trying to get at absolutely every possible audience they can they can capture um so i'm thinking about there would be a lot of hashtag homemade cookies hashtag homemade pasta really kind of uh focusing in on that that homemade aspect of it and the self-promotion um aspect of what social media is today and kind of what cookbook writing was in an earlier period.
0: Yeah, I can see something like, um, I always think of Beecher as being the queen of self-promotion of all of those people and, uh, you know, hashtag Beecher Cooks, you know, (laughs) to make sure her name is always included.
1: Yeah, and I can see Simmons using, you know, hashtag American Cookery and taking her, her title and turning it into a thing.
0: Yeah, I was thinking also maybe you know hashtag American orphan since that's how she tries to present herself in the in the qualifications on the on the title. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was fantastic. Uh, as you know, I have a fondness for food history, so I'm so glad to finally get to have this conversation with someone. So thank you for your time.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having. Me.